first of all, I want to thank John for allowing me to take and visit with you. There's nothing that I like better than, than speaking about uh, Christ, the return of Christ, uh, with my brothers and sisters in, in Christ. So uh, with that, we're going to take and uh, got a lot of ground to cover tonight. We're in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. We're going to spend probably as much time in the Old Testament as we do in the book of Revelation because there's certain things that we really need to take and to fully understand Revelation, because it's, it's been called the crossroads of the Bible. There's so much of, of, the, uh, of Revelation actually comes from different parts uh, of the Bible, uh, <clears throat> primarily Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Isaiah. We're just going to hit a bunch of the books tonight and stuff. Uh, <clears throat> as far as um, looking at uh, what's included in chapter 5, Kind of is to, to bring you up, chapter 4 and chapter 5 in Revelation are actually transitional chapters. As you recall, chapters 1, 2, and 3 uh, was the uh, kind of the preamble of setting the, the uh, um, groundwork, if you will, for the book of Revelation. And chapters 2 and 3 dealt with the, the uh, messages or the letters to the churches. Chapter 4, uh, as you'll recall, it really is a transition. John... Um, says that, that uh, he says, I looked, and in heaven a door was opened, and he was actually taken, he says, in the spirit up to, up to heaven, in the, the heavenly throne room. And re remember that John is actually seeing these things. He's interacting with these um, uh, creatures and, and the other elements that we see in the heavenly home room, uh, uh, throne room. So there's an interaction that takes place. He sees, he hears, he touches. Uh, in fact, in one part later on in Scripture, it says he actually eats part of a, a, a little scroll. So anyway, so <clears throat> but John's transported to the heavenly throne room. Um, we have the description of God and his throne, the 24 elders, the four living uh, creatures, the seven spirits of God designated seven flaming torches and the sea of glass um, or the sea uh, that appears clear like glass. So we may come back and, and make some reference to those. Chapter 5 then begins, like I said, this is, this is a transitional uh, two chapters because in chapter 6 we begin to see the, the uh, things in Revelation begin to, to unfold. Chapter 5 says, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. What I'll probably do is just take and read a verse and then we'll go back and we'll dissect it almost word for word. Uh, <clears throat> John says that he saw in the right hand. The right hand is, is the, the hand of power. It's the hand of authority. And this hand belongs to the one that was seated on the throne. This is God Almighty. The Ancient of Days, as he's called in the Old Testament. So he has a scroll. Now, the scroll is the important part the rest, for the rest of the book for Revelation because everything that, that we read henceforth from now is in, contained in this scroll uh, and the events that occur, the, the, the seals, the whole nine yards are, are embedded and revealed in this scroll. So the scroll is extremely important. So the question is, what does the scroll entail? Well, we know from having read the book of Revelation, all the different events and things that are going to take and occur. But what's the purpose of it? <clears throat> the, the rest of Revelation really hinges on the contents of the scroll. It is the unfolding of history, the culmination of history, uh, as God has, has recorded for us and is going to take and re reveal to mankind. 
if you take it, we look at this, God during this time period is really dealing with three major groups of individuals. He's, re, re, uh, he's revealing himself to the Gentile nations or the Gentile powers. He's revealing himself to the Jewish people who, as you know, rejected Messiah 2,000 years ago when he came. He's also dealing with those individuals who are unbelievers at this time during this transition. Now, we know how long the, the re revelation or the tribulation is going to last, right? We kind of all know that it's supposed to be seven years in length, right? That's kind of a common. Let's go to the book of Daniel, and we'll take and we'll look at that prophecy, and we'll see where that, that number comes from, how it in incorporated, because later on in the book of Revelation, it makes reference to the fact of there's some time periods and stuff. If you'll turn to Daniel with me, the ninth chapter of Daniel, beginning in the 24th uh, verse. This really sets the time period for us. I'm big on timelines. That's kind of the way that I think in linear time times. It's kind of like a calendar in our mind, and that's what we're going to lay out here. <clears throat> God has revealed to the prophet Daniel through the angel Gabriel this, this uh, prophecy. For those of us who like to study biblical prophecy and stuff, we refer to this as the 70 weeks prophecy. But we're going to dissect this almost word for word as we go through it so we get a good, firm understanding of what revelation, what unfolds in Revelation, okay? And we'll see where that seven-year time period uh, comes from. It's out of this, this, these few <clears throat> verses here. Okay, it says, 70 weeks are decreed upon your people and your holy city. 70 weeks, the Hebrew word for weeks is shivium, seven. What it means is a seven-year time period. In English, if I said uh, a decade, you know that a decade's how long? Ten years. This particular Hebrew word means that it's a seven-year time period. So let's do the math real quick. Seventy times seven is what? 490, right? Mm -hmm. So he's got 490 years. <clears throat> okay. Seventy weeks are decreed on your people, Daniel obviously was Jewish. The, the, the context of this is um, the two southern kingdoms have been taken into captivity in Babylonia or Babylon, the year 586 B.C. They would spend a period of 70 years of exile there. Daniel, of course, as you remember, was taken into exile. So he's there. <clears throat> these 70 weeks are these 490 prophetic years. Keep that in mind. They're prophetic years are decreed for your people, who? The Jewish people, the people that are there in Babylon, and for your holy city. So the focus is the people, we're given a timeline, or, or time frame, 70 weeks, 490 years. The focus is on the people, the Jewish people, and the holy city, Jerusalem. Then he gives us the purpose. What's to be achieved by this? It gets richer as, as we go. This is the purpose these are what is going to be achieved during this 490 years of, of, of uh, prophetic uh, discourse. Jews in Jerusalem. Here's the purpose. It's to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring ever, in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet. To seal it in the Hebrew word, it just means to complete it, to, to, to kind of tie everything together. That's what it means. 
<clears throat> so he's, he's tying everything together when we see the culmination of everything during this 490 prophetic time period. And to anoint a most holy one, the Messiah. Some translations translate it as the holy place, the holy of holies. The alternate reading is the holy one. As you and I know, that we're studying the book of Revelation, that's the Messiah is coming at the height of the battle of Armageddon, et cetera, et cetera. So it's to anoint a holy one. Again, you've read the, the book of Revelation. You know that there's what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb at, at the end after all these events take place. So that's what we've got. Those are the purposes. Okay. Then he gives us a timeline. Not only do we have the, the, the time period, the length of time, who it's focused on, the purpose of, of those. And I'm not going to write those down. The other thing that we have then is <clears throat> the timeline. And he goes, know therefore and understand from the time that the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of the anointed prince. Some translations have it, the, the, the Messiah, the prince. Depends on what translation you have. There shall be seven weeks. Notice that this 490 years is broken down into three separate time frames. Seven weeks or 49 years. 62 weeks, which is 400, and I didn't do the math in my head. I had it written down here. 434 years. Okay. If you do that math real quick, you see that there's 69 weeks there, 62 and 7. But notice that they're broken up, that they don't run concurrently. Okay. There shall be seven weeks, and for 62 weeks it shall be built again with streets and moat, but in troubled time. If you'll recall, after the Babylonian captivity, the, the Babylonians were overtaken by the Medes and the Persians. It's historical fact. Uh, Cyrus the Persian then allowed the, the Jews to take and return from Babylon back to Jerusalem, back to the, the Holy Land, if you will. There's two mass migrations that took place, one under Ezra, <clears throat> the other under Nehemiah, and a character by the name of Zerubbabel, who's the one that, that was the, kind of the master builder that rebuilt the, the, the temple. <clears throat> It says that it was a, a rebuilt in troubled times. During that 49 years, seven weeks and stuff, it, the scripture says that the workman had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other to take, and that, that's how perilous it was. So after those seven weeks or 49 years, the clock stops for a brief period of time. There's other things that transpire, of course, in history and whatnot, but as far as God's time clock as far as prophetic th things that it, it comes to a standstill then it picks up again then he gives us the terminus of that he goes after the 62 weeks after it's rebuilt there's a time lag then 62 weeks then it picks up again he gives us the, the terminal end of it then after the 62 weeks an anointed one the messiah shall be cut off and have nothing that 62 weeks ends 30 A.D. That's when Jesus was on earth. That's when he was crucified, resurrected, 30 A.D. So the, the time period that you have from 586 B.C., there's 70 years that they're in captivity. The decree goes out. It starts for 49 weeks. There's a gap there. Then you have 62 weeks terminating in when? When 
when the anointed one or the Messiah is cut off and will have nothing. So he didn't have the kingdom that was promised to David, the King David, that the Messiah was to take and fulfill. He didn't have the following other than those who, who uh, individuals who, who saw the Christ as, as the Messiah. So he, he didn't have the fulfillment of uh, those Old Testament prophecies that they were expecting the Messiah to have. So there he has, the, the anointed one of the Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. And the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, of course, history continued, continued on, but God's time clock stopped here at 30 AD. The troops of the prince that shall come. This prince that shall come, we know, eventually, is the characters we call the Antichrist. Um, he's known as the son of perdition, the, the, the man of lawlessness. Uh, there's just a humpteen dozen different nicknames that he goes by. But for us, uh, this, the prince that shall come, we're going to call it the Antichrist. That's the easiest way uh, that we're going to know about it. It says the troops... So these were the Romans, of course, at that time. They were the Gentile power during that time period. Uh, they shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That occurred in 70 A.D. under Titus and Vespasian. The temple's destroyed. Now that's not included in that 62-week or that 69-week period. Okay. The prince who is to come shall destroy, the, the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the, the uh, sanctuary, the city and the sanctuary. That occurred 70 A.D. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. He, again referring to this character that, that becomes, eventually becomes known as the Antichrist for, for us, that's just the easiest way to, to remember it, that he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. There's that last seven-year time period. God, again, puts on the table road markers for us uh, that are going to, to take and occur. This prince who will come, the one that we eventually know as the Antichrist, makes a strong covenant. We don't know if it's kind of a peace pact, an agreement, but the, there are implications. The, the first thing you have to imply is that there had to be a nation of Israel in existence again. 70 A.D., the Romans pretty much destroy them. In 132 A.D., there's a second Jewish revolt. This is called the first Jewish revolt. Second Jewish revolt occurs in 132 A.D. Romans put it down and basically empty out Judea, Samaria, the Holy Land and stuff from Jews. They're, they're sold into slavery. That's the beginning of what's re referred to as the diaspora, worldwide dispersion of the Jewish people. You may have read the word before in the newspapers, but it's called the diaspora. So the implication is, one, there had to be a nation of Israel. That occurred in 1948. The other implication is here that he says they makes a strong covenant with many for one week. It's not everybody that, that agrees with what's going to take place. It says with many. So it's the you know, the, the ruling, whoever's in, in charge at that time has, has the say-so. So there's going to be some opposition to it. Uh, he shall make a co strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week, or in the midst of the week, as some of your translations will read, in the midst of the week, he shall make sacrifice and offering cease. The other implication is that there has to be a temple in place in order for this. It's called the abomination of desolation. So 
It has to exist. The Jews had to be in control of the city of Jerusalem. That <clears throat> occurred in 1967 when they overtook it. And that's kind of what's going on right now. That's kind of the, the stage rep. Of course, there's not a temple there. At this point in time, it seems almost virtually impossible for the, the, the Islamic group that's in control. It's called the Waqf. They're, they're in control of the Temple Mount right now. So, But in order for these things to be fulfilled, if our understanding of scripture is, is correct, and, and I believe it is, that uh, a temple has to, to exist. During that time period, the uh, Old Testament form of sacrifice and offerings will be back in, in form again. Uh, and there's what's called the Temple Institute. There's a group of Jews in, in Israel today that have, have made all the uh, accoutrements that go along with temple worship. The only thing they're lacking right now is uh, um, a temple in order to take and initiate the, uh, the, the worship service and a few other things and stuff. I don't want to bore you with those. those. Those are minor details. Anyway, in the middle of the week, in the middle of the tribulation, in the middle of that seven and a half years, uh, after three and a half years, he's going to make sacrifice and offering cease, and in their place shall be an abomination that desolates. We're going to learn later on in the book of Revelation that this Antichrist character has a statue, or a statue is made of, of this, or an image, it says. I assume it's a statue. An image is made of him, and this image is able to talk. Um, so, again, this image, statue, whatever you want to call it, is going to be placed there in, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. We'll see that again. Jesus confirms this, this scenario, and we're fixing to look at that, too. So there will be an abomination that desolates until the de decreed end is poured out upon the desolator, until that time that Christ returns. Jesus confirms this very sequence of events. We'll take, if you look at Matthew chapter 24, we're just going to briefly look at that to confirm. This is Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. And this is Jesus talking to the disciples. This is called the Olivet Discourse. This disciples, they're up at the temple, they're looking at the temple, and they say, Jesus, you know, look, look at all these magnificent buildings and stuff like that. And then they start asking when he's going to return. He hadn't gone anywhere yet at this particular time period in history, but they're wanting to know about his return. Matthew chapter 24, beginning verse 15, he says, this is Jesus speaking, he goes, So when you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place, as was spoken by the prophet Daniel, so again, he's referring back to what we just read, that there's going to be a character that comes there that desolates or, or desecrates uh, the temple. He goes, when you see that, and then Matthew's recording this for us, he, he parenthetically says, let the reader understand. So <clears throat> you understand now because we've just gotten through reading it. So you understand. He goes, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The focus again is on who? It's on the Jewish people in Jerusalem. He goes, those who are in Judea. Judea is what the, what's called now in the, in the news the West Bank. Judea and Samaria of the Old Testament, New Testament is actually what's called the West Bank now. So whenever you hear that, you, you, you think of that. Again, under this peace treaty or whatever it turns out to be, there are going to be Jews living in that part. That's where, right now, that's where the Palestinians want part of their homeland is in, in Judea, Samaria, the West Bank. That's, so that's where you want to keep your eye on what's going on in the world. He goes, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. 
The one on the housetop must thus go down to take what's in the house. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. These things are going to occur so rapidly that you don't have time to prepare for them. You, you've got to be ready to, to take and move. He then goes on, woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. <clears throat> Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Again, an indication in, in Israel today, of course, there's, there's Sabbaths Friday evening to Saturday evening. The, the entire country transportation system set, shuts down. They don't run buses. They don't run taxis. It's just, it, it comes to a standstill. That's what he's saying here, that pray that it's not on a Sabbath. <clears throat> where you don't have the ability uh, to get out of, out of Judea. He then goes on, for at that time there will be great suffering, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So again, this is that last half, that's last three and a half years of the seven-year uh, time cycle. And he goes on to say, if, it, if those days had not been cut short, no one would be, be saved, <clears throat> but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Those of the elect, of course, he's talking about from the Old Testament, he's talking about the Jewish people, those, those his brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, uh, so Jesus confirms what Daniel tells us. We've got the seven-year seven time period. It's sometime out here in history. We don't know when. So it's the one week, seven years. And in the midst of it, it's three and a half years. In Revelation, it talks about 42 months, um, 1,260 days. But that's that. When you do the math, that's what it is. It's ha it's it's half of three, uh, half of seven. All right, good deal. Now, <clears throat> let's take and we've got. We've got the idea. Is everybody clear on the, the seven years and where it comes from and, and what's going on with that? Everybody got that? Because I don't want to leave anybody behind. Because this is extremely crucial. Because it all deals with that scroll, what's going to take place from here on. So the time clock on this apparently is whenever this individual who's called the, the Antichrist makes some kind of covenant, whatever that degrees, the confirmation of the covenant. Uh, maybe the, the covenant that God made with Abraham that, you know, you've got the land from here to here. It, it's something to deal with the, with the, uh, uh, the possession of the land. So, but there's what it's going to be. That's where the time clock starts for that last seven-year time period. So let's take and look at this Antichrist character a little bit here, and then we'll get back to the book of Revelation and continue on, on that. So, uh, All right. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And this is Paul writing, and again he's writing about, and in this particular case he calls the Antichrist the lawless one. Again, all this, you're thinking, well, why are you chasing these rabbits? It's all very important to know because of that scroll and, and what's fixing to transpire. So you have to have a framework. You have to, have, you have to know what's going on background-wise because then the numbers that we read about stuff all make sense later on when we get there. Paul says, as to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the second coming, and to our being gathered together with him, that's what most folks refer to as the rapture. 
Two separate events, just like Jesus was on earth 2,000 years ago. He's coming sometime in the future. You take and you read passages out of the Old Testament, and they seem to be simultaneous events. They're not. There's time, there's time that, that separates the two. As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or letter, as though from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. The day of the Lord is a very technical term, and it's, it's, it's found in the book of Amos. Amos defines, us, defines the day of the Lord for us, and it may not be what you think. This is Amos chapter 5, beginning of verse 18. He goes, Alas, or woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. If somebody fled from a lion and was met by a bear, or went into a house and rested his hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake, it is not the day of the Lord's, is not the day of the Lord's darkness, not light, and gloom with no brightness in it. Again, it's talking about the second coming of Christ. Uh, as we know, again, from having, having read it and just kind of generally knowing, is at the time of the, the height of the Battle of Armageddon. You read about it in Zechariah. You're going to read about it in Revelation. So that's the day of the Lord. It's, it's not the day of the Lord is not when, when he comes for the, for the church or, or the Christians, uh, you and I as believers. Uh, and if you read the passages, there's a, there's a description of Christ coming for the church or the believers, and there's a time when he described as coming with the saints or with the believers, two totally separate, separate passages. Or, or events. He goes, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed. That word rebellion in, in the Greek actually means departure. If any of you have the King James Version that you're reading along with it, the, the King James reads, except there's a falling away first. The actual literal translation out of the Greek the Greek is, except the departure comes first. That's the literal translation. I believe, and it's my conviction, along with other guys that I take and read, that that is actually talking about a departure of, of the believers. We'll read on a little bit and see if it doesn't make sense to you. <clears throat> Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the departure or the taking away or the rapture, whatever you want to call it, comes first, and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. Again, this is the Antichrist that he's talking about. He opposes and exalts himself above, above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Again, it just confirms what Jesus said, and it confirms what the prophet Daniel said. There has to be a nation of Israel. They have to possess Jerusalem. There has to be a, a temple. Now, this temple could be built, and it could be in existence for 100 years before any of these events occur. It's probably not likely, but that is a possibility, that it could, it could be built you know, two or three years from now and not be, not be in this fulfillment until sometime in the future. But anyway, he takes his seat in the temple of God, declares himself to be God. Again, we're going to see this very same thing reiterated in Revelation later on in, in the chapters. He goes, do you not remember that I told you these things when I was with you? Here's the kicker. And you, and you know what is now restraining him. There's something that's restraining the revealing of this antichrist, this lawless one, from 
from occurring. He goes, and you know what is now restraining him so that he may be revealed when the time comes. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who now restrains it is removed. I believe that's, a, and my conviction is, and the other writers and stuff, that that's the Holy Spirit. You and I, Christians, the, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, this time at the rapture, again, that's the part with our being gathered together to him. The, the, the Antichrist, this lawless one, can't be revealed, he says, because there's something restraining it. There's goodness in the world, the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and it's going to continue that way until that is removed. My conviction is that's the time that the, the rapture occurs. And then at that time, this individual will be able to be revealed for who he really is. And then... It says, after, after the restrainer, and again, I believe that's the Holy Spirit who, who indwells us as Christians, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will destroy with the breath of his now mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. Again, that's what he's referring to back in verse 1, as to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two separate events. Keep that in mind. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all powers and signs and lying wonders and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion. Well, if you have millions and millions of people that disappear uh, off the face of the earth, this guy is revealed, the Antichrist and stuff, it's going to take a powerful delusion for people to take and come to grips with what, what's happened. So... He's going to, uh, he'll send them a powerful delusion, leading them to believe what is false, so that <clears throat> all who have not believed the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. So, okay, let's get back to chapter 5. So we have the scroll. The culmination of, of, of history is going to take and be revealed in it. Okay, it's written on the inside and the back. It's sealed with seven seals. The way these scrolls work and stuff, God would write a little bit on it or the, it would be revealed. John would write a little bit on it, roll it up, seal it. He'd write a little bit more, roll it up, seal it. He'd write a little bit more, roll it up and seal it seven times. As we see in chapter 6, whenever the, he breaks a seal, opens up part of it, and certain events occur. He opens another seal, opens the scroll, more events occur. So it's sequential in the way that it goes, very much like it's timeline is, is what's going to take and occur. So we've got this, the seven seals. And he says, I, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? We don't know what this, who this angel is. Maybe Michael, maybe Gabriel. It's an un, unnamed angel, but it's a mighty angel. He's wanting to know who is worthy to open the scroll. Who has the authority to be able to open these scrolls and look into it? Because God Almighty, it's, it's his plan for the next seven years that he's about to reveal what's the culmination of history. And it's revealing himself again to an unbelieving world, to the Gentile powers, and also to his Jewish people, who, who he really is. Who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look in it. No one had authority to take and do this, to take and reveal what God had revealed to, to John uh, in this prophecy of what's going to take place. And he goes, John says, I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. 
He wants to know what God has revealed for mankind, how, how Jesus is going to take and reveal himself. He's saddened by this. He weeps bitterly. Then one of the elders, this is the 24 elders from, from chapter 4, said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David are both messianic terminations or, or terminology. Let's take, you have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 49 to find out about this. This is Jacob and his 12 sons, and Jacob's on his deathbed. He calls his sons in to give them blessings, and Judah is the one that, that he blesses. Let's take and look at this, Genesis chapter 49, beginning at verse 8. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's sons shall bow down before you. We're told that, that the Messiah, that Jesus is of the lineage of David, which is the house of Judah. He's, he's, that's where the Messiah is going to come from. He's called the Lion of Judah because Judah is a lion's whelp. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches down. He stretches out like a lion, like a lioness who dares rouse him up. Again, messianic. The, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. He, he, this is going to be the ruling house of David. Uh, as David was promised that he would always have uh, an heir on the throne, and Jesus is that one. Um, nor will the scepter or the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and the obedience of his people is his. Again, sometime in the future, the Jews are going to take and acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. Again, it all goes hand in glove. <laughs> Pay attention to 11 and 12. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. We know that that's what occurred when Jesus came the first time, when he makes his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. What does he come on? A donkey. Yeah. So <clears throat> his robes, uh, he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Figurative speech for the fact that he was cut off, that he was crucified sacrifice we're going to see the same terminology later on in the book of revelation when it talks about he's treading the wine press of god's wrath uh wine press with the grapes coming out it tells us that you know the blood stands to the horse's bridle in and around jerusalem <clears throat> his eyes are darker than wine in other words he's entering into judgment with these nations and and the folks that come up against jerusalem um, you can read about that uh in the book of Zechariah. And his teeth are whiter than milk. Now, it doesn't have anything to do with his dentition or how his teeth are. They're nice and stuff like that. Larry Sparks is going to be out of a job, I'm afraid. Uh, it, it's actually a, uh, a figure of speech that his teeth are white. That means that he's not stained them, uh, that he hadn't any, had anything to eat. And there's other passages in the Old Testament. It talks about the people having uh, clean teeth. It's because there was nothing there to eat. And you think, well, what does that got to do with this? If you'll recall in the book of Matthew at the, at the Lord's Supper, at the very end, this is what he says. He goes, I tell you, this is Jesus after he's talking with the disciples there at the, at the Passover meal and stuff. And he goes, I tell you, I will never again drink the fruit of the vine, wine, uh, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We know that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. So 2,000 years ago, that's a pretty long time to go without uh, 
interaction with your disciples and, and your, your uh, redeemed and stuff like that. So again, that's what it's referenced. It's very, very subtle, some of these prophetic passages. Uh, so there, there's the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Keep that, that image in mind. He's also the root of David. I'll just refer you to Isaiah chapter 11 for the, the root of David. <clears throat> See, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He's the one that has the pedigree because of the fact that he was God's son, obeyed God, was crucified, resurrected. He's the one that now has the, the pedigree and the authority to be able to take the scroll and open the seven seals and to reveal the events that God has planned for the culmination of, of history uh, during the seven-year time period. He goes, then I saw between the throne, we saw that in chapter 4, the description of the throne, the four living creatures, um, and among the elders, the four living creatures, if you take and look at them, four in prophetic or apocalyptic literature, four is the number, it's an earth number, uh, four Four points of the you know, north, south, east, west. <clears throat> this, it's symbolic or uh, indicative of, of all creation. Uh, if you look at the, the four creatures, the first one has the, the face of a lion. Those are the untamed beasts that, that God has created and stuff that, that are not used by mankind. The lion, and it's kind of the king of the beasts. The next one is the ox. Those are the domesticated, so uh, animals. Again, the ox being the one that... The, mankind has, has uh, domesticated. The other creature has the face of a human being. Well, God created the human race. The other one is, is an eagle. You know, the eagle's at the top of the pecking order and, and the, the, the uh, fowls, uh, birds and stuff like that. So again, it's just a symbolic way of all creation. So between the throne, before all of God's creation, and among the elders, so this individual, this lion of Judah, we're going to find out he's, he's referred to as a lamb. He's among the elders. I believe the elders, the 24 elders, are made up of, of two different divisions, 12 of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, which are the, the redeemed of the Old Testament, the righteous of the Old Testament, those who, like Abraham, were looking forward to Messiah coming. They put their faith that God was going to take and fulfill that. So the Old Testament faithful the other 12, which would make up 24 of those symbolic ones, are the, the apostles. Those, those would be the New Testament saints, those who came to believe in Christ from the time of his death and resurrection. So those are the ones looking back. You have one group looking forward. You have one group looking back. But it, it combines the 12 patriarchs, the 12 apostles, which are all symbolic. Uh, so you get 24 elders. I think it's just a poetic way of saying these are the redeemed of the earth. And Jesus is among them. And among the elders, so he's among those. The fact of it, too, and it's not mentioned here, but it's mentioned in chapter 4, it talks about the sea of glass. You remember that, that phrase? That's a reference out of the book of Micah that God <clears throat> will cast the people's uh, sins into the sea, never to, be <clears throat> never to be remembered. So again, there's all kinds of little subtle things here that, that God has to be economical with the amount of words that he uses, but there are references, again, found in the Old Testament. So again, these sins have been cast into the sea. The elders, symbolic of all those who are redeemed, are, are righteous individuals. The lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered. Notice the contrast. You have the lion, the lion of Judah, and now he's, he's seen as a lamb. <clears throat> it just talks or, or points to the dual functionality that Jesus has, 
had in the past and is going to have in the future. The sacrificial lamb, but he's also the lion of Judah. He's the military leader. Um, it, it says that he has seven horns. Again, in apocalyptic literature, Jewish apocalyptic literature, and John, the revelation of John's not the only one. There's about four or five others that were written about the same time that this one was, and they all use very, very similar uh, terminology and all very similar uh, imagery, two of which are referred to in the book of Jude. Uh, you know, I, the book of Jude, there's the assumption of Moses, which is an apocalyptic uh, writing, and also First Enoch. It's in the book of Jude, if you take, and, and Jude, when he's writing that, he actually draws two quotes out of these apocalyptic. Now, they're not included in our Bible, but they existed at that time, and they were drawn upon. <clears throat> there's one that's called the, the uh, First Barak, uh, and again, it uses this, this very same imagery of a lamb and a lion. This particular lamb has seven horns, seven being the number of completeness. Horns are, in the Old Testament, were a, a source of power. So this, this lamb is a uh, horned animal, so he, he's complete, and he has complete power. And some of these other apocalypses and stuff, the, the uh, ram or the, the sheep, the horned sheep, are, are military leaders. Again, it's not included in, in the Bible, but there's a reference to a group of people called the Maccabees. And they were referred to as horned sheep. They were military leaders that, that threw out the Greeks and rededicated the temple. Uh, the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah revolve, evolves around that. Okay. Any, <clears throat> anyway, this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out onto all the earth. Now, John defines for us what these seven eyes are. We don't have to think and, 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 and conjecture, and I'm not one to conjecture. I've taken, I look at the Old Testament passages and stuff, and that's the way that the book of Revelation is interpreted. Seven, horn, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the, the earth. What are those seven spirits? Isaiah defines them for us. We go back into the Old Testament. The, the Spirit of the Lord is the first one. That's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is the first one. The Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of fear or delight and fear of the Lord. Those are the seven qualities or, or seven uh, spirits of God that, are, that go out throughout the earth. So you know individuals that are like that. Some are good in counseling, some are good in wisdom, knowledge, understanding, etc. So <laughs> Isaiah chapter 11. I had it written down. I was going to go there, but I know we're running short on time. So, I, I, if. okay, he, the, Jesus, the Lamb, the Lion of Judah, went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. From God Almighty, he takes it out of his right hand. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp, which was a musical instrument, and golden bowls of incense. We don't have to guess what that means. He defines it for us, which are the prayers of the saints. So, again, there's a lot of symbolism here. Sometimes it's defined for us within the text itself. At other times, you have to know your, your Old Testament, where these references come from. So, anyway, they fall down to worship the Lamb. Um, they're the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. Now, in the in the... In the Bible, there's several songs. There was a song of Moses. There was a song of Miriam. There was a song of uh, 
Deborah. She was one of the female judges back in the Old Testament times. There was the song of Barak. Uh, again, another uh, kind of hero of the Old Testament. Mary in the New Testament and Zacharias in the New Testament. They all had songs. Um, and the songs, of course, David, you know, he, he wrote tons of them in the book of Psalms. Um, but there's two things that are really kind of unique about songs or psalms and stuff uh, when they relate to these individuals. It, that One, they recount history, things that occur, and the other two is they give praise to the, to the individual. So that's kind of the, the twofold thing that these songs, if you take and you read uh, any of the ones in the Old Testament. But this is the new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints, believers, saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. So it's not just these individuals that God's going to be dealing with the Jewish nation and stuff. Yeah, he has an economy with them during this time period, but it's also with all those who, um, like you and I, who become believers, those in, in the tribulation period who are unbelievers but who come to Christ. And it says that there are going to be untold numbers during that seven-year time period that actually become believers that, that come to Christ. So <clears throat> you have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God. If you look back in the book of Exodus, this very same thing is set, said about the nation of Israel, that the, the, the Jewish people, that they were going to be a kingdom of, of, of priests serving God. Well, same thing's being said about now in, in conjunction with, with, uh, with these new believers. And they will reign on earth. And it's, again, a future tense type thing. It's, the other thing, too, that I, I always take and put this as an aside, my, and you can disagree with this and stuff. I think Scripture points to this, this fact. But, um, and it's not a salvation question. I mean, it's, it, it's not. It's just kind of one of those fun things to sit there and, and read. And it's, it's like a good Agatha Christie uh, mystery. There's all kinds of little clues dropped along there, and you don't sometimes know they're a clue until after the fact. But <clears throat> that they will reign on earth. I, I believe that the church, you and I believers and stuff, are going to be taken off the earth before the tribulation begins and for the Antichrist to be revealed. Those people that, that come to Christ during that time period and stuff um, will take and be those who, who will be the ones reigning on earth. It, it's, some folks teach that the, the rapture comes at post-tribulation after the time that Christ is coming back and all the believers are taken up with God or taken up uh, to, to Jesus. The only problem with that is then that negates everything that's written in Micah and, and uh, the book of Isaiah when it talks about uh, they'll beat their, their uh spears into pruning hooks, and it talks about, you know, a person living to be 100 years of age, and the child can put his hand over the, the, uh, the, the, the viper's pit. If everybody that comes to God during that time period, and at the end of the tribulation, they're raptured, there's no living mortals left. It also negates the fact that Christ, when he talked about in Matthew chapter 25, uh, separating the sheep from the goats, the good guys from the bad guys. There's not going to be any good guys left mortals left on earth if that's the case and stuff. So you can argue it, argue it both ways, but I believe that it, it teaches that, uh, that there will be actually uh, taken out of the way. And it's not proof, but, but if you'll think back, it's occurred several times in, in history. You've got Noah 
and the ark, and there's judgment was going to come. Noah and his family were put in the ark. They were, they were kept from the, the, the destruction that came. Lot and his family, when the angels came to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, the warning came to Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his family were taken out before destruction fell. Rahab there at Jericho, whenever the destruction was going to come upon Jericho, uh, Rahab was taken out, allowed to get out and stuff. So it, it's consistent with the way God's work. It's not a proof, but it's consistent with, with the way that, that God has dealt in the past. So be that as it may, that they are going to reign on earth. Verse 11, he goes, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And they numbered myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, singing with full voice. And again, this is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, the book of Daniel. That's one thing about apocalyptic literature, Jewish literature. It's 750. I'll, I'll be through in just a second. Uh, that's one thing about it, uh, uh, the apocalyptic literature. Whenever you, it, it's it's always vast numbers of of either angels or believers or whatever taking and, and praising God. That's just kind of one of the one of the uh, hallmarks of of this type of literature. <clears throat> and like I said, the Book of Revelation, Ezekiel, Daniel. There's there's many many different apocalypses out there and stuff. Uh, and a lot of them have. Uh, even though they didn't make it into the entire Bible, they have very, very similar uh, um, imagery. Okay, they numbered myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands, singing in full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive the power, the wealth, the wisdom, the might, the honor, the glory, and the blessing. Seven attributes. Again, completeness, wholeness, the whole cycle. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them. Again, all of God's creation is taking and praising, praising him. <clears throat> to the one seated on the throne, that's God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, and to the Lamb, two separate individuals, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Four, again, the number four, uh, the earth number. So, again, this is going to be dealing with the things that are fixing to occur on earth because uh, <clears throat> the lamb is going to be blessed, he's going to be honored, he's going to have glory, and he's going to have might once he comes into his kingdom. But, again, the, hence the four. You see seven, completeness, that's in the heavenly realm. Four is the earth number that when, when he returns to earth. And the four living creatures, again, symbolic of all of, of God's creation, I believe, said, Amen, and the elders, those who are the redeemed, all the righteous from ages past and the future, the elders fell down and worshipped. So we have heavenly worship that takes place. It's a, it's a big <laughs> Sunday school, Bible, Bible school meeting and stuff, this vision. Now is when the scroll begins to open, beginning in chapter 6. This is when the, the Lamb, Jesus, opens the scroll, starts tearing those seals, and then the events begin to transpire. So does everybody understand now that the seven-year time period, where it came from, God's prophetic, prophetic word? Seven years, sometime in the future, the starting point, according to Scripture, is when this individual who's known as the Antichrist takes and makes a covenant with the, the Jewish people nation of Israel, what form it's going to be in, can't really tell you. More than likely, it's going to be a, a peace treaty, some, some type of accommodation. Uh, 
with the uh, Palestinians and establishment of a homeland for them, et cetera, et cetera.